This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is Meg Gardner. She is the Edgar Award winning novelist of the Joe Beckett series, the Evan Delaney series, and the Unsub series, as well as four standalone thrillers. She also co-authored Heat 2 with filmmaker Michael Mann. That is out now on shelves, and it is fantastic. It's both a prequel and a sequel to Michael Mann's 1995 film, heat. And uh, I had such a great time reading this novel, as you will hear on this podcast. So now, without further ado, Meg Gardner. Meg, how are you? I'm well. How are you, Jack? (laughs) I am great. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, you bet. It's a great opportunity. I'm so glad you're having me on the show. Oh, I am so excited. And so I was one minute late for those that are watching or listening uh, because I could not put it down. I know that's an overused term and I don't think I've ever used it before, but I couldn't like, I was like, oh, well, if I don't finish it this morning, you know, I'll just say that I'm right about here. Uh, I had to finish it. There was no way I could have jumped on this podcast without finishing this. It is so good. You did such an amazing job. I mean, I was yeah, rarely do I use the word best or favorite or anything like that, um, just because everything's so subjective. But this is awesome. Oh, thank you so much. And I, I have to brag that I guess I finished In the Blood before you managed to finish Heat too. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, thank you for taking the time to do that. I <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> appreciate <I'm not>. it. <laughs> too cool, too cool. Um, but before we get to this, Heat 2, which is absolutely incredible, and I think people are going to study this. I mean, up and coming writers are going to read this about the way to do it, to do it right, keep people guessing, have everything on this, just have you on this journey that with, with the climax is in one of the best action scenes I've ever read, I think. Yeah. Wow. And I've read a lot. You have, you've written a lot. You've written some stunning action scenes. (laughs) Not as much as you, not as much as you. We got here, this unsub series. We have so much that you have going on. So before we get to to heat and uh, I have so many questions about about the, what what it took to get this published here, but I know we have something in common and that's that we both like to write on planes. And I heard you say that before. And I think for me, it started about three or four years ago. And I just realized, because I never log on to the whatever Wi-Fi you can get on a plane. And I take that as my time not to be distracted by anything. And I told my wife a couple of times that I think I'm just going to start just taking flights just around <laughs> until I finish a novel and just sit there and have people bring me food and drinks as I type away. But I read that you like to do that too. It's amazing. I always uh, resisted it for a long time thinking, ah, who wants to pull out a pen? You know, I've had pens explode at uh, <laughs> at cruising altitude or, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to try to get my laptop onto the tray table. But once you do it, like usually I started because I had a deadline or something, mm-hmm. I realized this is shocking. I'm so extraordinarily productive. What is the difference? I'm like, well, I can't get up. I can't run out. I can't uh, leave the plane. I'm not on Wi-Fi. Nothing to distract me. It was, it was just marvelous. So I'm glad you agree that it's a, it's a, it's a sneaky trick that uh, uh, yes. we can take advantage of. 
It really is. And I resisted it for a while too. Um, but, but I think it was with, with COVID, one of my first flights during COVID when they were separating people. And mm. so you didn't have someone right there just looking over your shoulder um, by necessity, just by the way they were doing flights back then. And so I think I really embraced it during that time frame. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah. now I just continue to do it. And I, I think I might, maybe for this next book, I'll just keep flying. I'll take some interna- long international there flights. There you go. And uh, also, you know, when you've got, when you know that you're uh, heading into, uh, you know, like when your landing time, is you, you've got this, that countdown going on. So you like try to type as fast as possible. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's so nice. Cause for me, I find it's the interruptions that, uh, that get me. We have three kids, dog, and it's just chaos around here all the time with people coming and going and friends and the, and the whole thing. Um, so what I usually do if I'm not flying is, uh, rent an Airbnb that's, uh, not too far away, but not right next door, um, where I can just work a very small cabin where I can get from the, the, a table to the kitchen, to a little sofa in front of a wood burning stove. And it's all right there. So it makes everything so efficient. So exactly. Exactly. But on the plane, you can't do that. You're just stuck. You're just stuck. (laughs) Uh, But for for those listening who who don't know you, I know you always wanted to be be a writer, but you got sidetracked by the law first for a few years. Uh, So what was that journey like growing up and wanting to be a writer and then going into law? I did want to write from the time I was a kid. I was just, I just love telling stories. I love seeing people be interested in the like little stories I would make up or write and draw with crayons. And I told my parents when I was uh, in college, I did not major in English or creative writing or anything, but I told my parents that I really wanted to write. My parents were both teachers. My dad was an English professor. uh, So he knew what the writing life was like, I think. And he said, that's, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, have you thought about how you're going to put food on the table while you're spending all those years making your way, trying to get published and be a writer? And I'm like, um, really? <laughs> we have to think about, about practical things like that. And he said, yes, you know, so honey, if you want to, to go on and start writing, do it. I mean, I was fortunate that my parents really encouraged me to do what I wanted to do and believe that I could do it if I put my heart and mind and effort into it. But I, he said, you know, you can, you can start writing today. And, you know, when you get off your shift at Denny's and and get home at, uh, at two, uh, I hope you'll have the energy to, to, to write something goes, or, you know, there's that other thing that uh, we, we may have talked about at one point, which is, uh, is uh, going to law school because then you know you could also be writing on weekends when you're uh, when you're paying the rent <laughs> by mm-hmm. being a lawyer. So I listened to my dad, and he was uh, a smart man, and uh, it was uh, it was it was a good it was a good decision. Um, I I loved practicing law. I realized before too long that I um, I probably didn't have the personality to to thrive on arguing for a living for 30 or 40 years. So I uh, paid off the student loans and moved from writing into teaching, teaching legal writing and, and writing. And from there, that was my secret launch pad to, to move over to trying to, to write fiction, which, which took a lot of years. I'm sure you know how it, how it goes. But well, uh, I did my mind. Yeah. I was in the military for 20 years. So there was no real option to, to off ramp. I guess you could, but we're in the middle of Iraq and Afghanistan and your feel is, uh, 
kind of this, this devotion uh, and this duty to to stay in and, and keep doing the job as best as you can for the for the people that you're you're with there and for the for the country. But uh, but similar to you, I mean, you were what, what kind of law did you practice? By the way, did you specialize? What did you specialize in? It was business litigation. So I was not a criminal lawyer. I you know I went to court, but it was all it was all civil civil suits. Yeah. So I know the court system. I. Um, I uh, moved out of that into teaching college kids and raising my own three kids. And it was when uh, my husband was, uh, his job was transferred to London from Southern California that I went over there with, with the, the, the three little ones who were finally uh, out of diapers. They won't like me mentioning that, but they were finally old enough to, uh, to, to, to manage a little bit on their own at school. And I said, you know what? Um, I've been talking about writing a novel since forever. So when am I ever going to have another chance to have the time to do it? And I'd better put up or shut up. So I took a shot and it was terrible. No, <laughs> really? So it wasn't, it wasn't China Lake. It was a different one. It was a different one. It was a different one. It had it had some of the same characters in it, but it was I thought it was fantastic. Of course, when I was writing it, you know, it was a caper novel and it had thousands of characters and just pages and pages of endless banter and crazy <laughs> stuff going on and I was telling everybody I was writing this murder mystery and a friend of mine said, "That's great." But just one thing, you keep describing this book and nobody in it dies. <laughs> Yeah, I guess a murder so, mystery might need the the actual yeah, murder. Yeah, so I so that one went that one went in the file cabinet, and I I wrote another one. I wrote China Lake, which was my first published novel, and I haven't looked back. Yeah, you've been going strong for for a while and just crushing it at every turn. Um, but that first one, did did you ever show it to an agent, or did you did you look for an agent, or go to a book like a Thriller Fest or Boucherkhan or that kind of a thing, or what did you? Absolutely, did you I did. I did. Uh, I sh- I showed it to a number of agents. I. Um, I, the, the first book actually got me an agent, got my, my first agent in, in London. His name was Giles Gordon. He was a legendary agent. I was extremely fortunate. He was terrific. He uh, sent it out, got a little bit of interest in it. And, you know, in the meantime, he's saying, this is going on. Don't sit back. You know, what are you working on next? Mm. Uh, get going on that. So by the time, you know, he said, I've gotten marginal interest on, on it. You know, do you have anything else? I, I handed him the manuscript to China Lake and he said, put the other one away. <laughs> which my which my husband kind of like he's he sort of like slapped his forehead and you know because I'd been working on the first one for for a long time mm-hmm. and, and I said no I this one's better uh, I think I figured out how to clear the bar and uh, write something that's publishable nice. so and it, and it was <laughs> oh that's fantastic um, and what drew you to the thriller genre or a crime fiction in particular was there uh, something that drew you to that? Or did you think about some other genres first or what, what was that journey like? I, I was a thriller reader, a thriller yeah. suspense reader. I'm also a big science fiction reader. I think I, uh, I thought about trying to write science fiction or some kind of romantic suspense. And my efforts at that were just like so <laughs> miserable that I quickly uh, said, <laughs> no, let, if, if I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write the kind of book that I love to read. And I imagine maybe that's one reason you or it's also in, um, mm-hmm. in writing writing thrillers because you know there's nothing like that pulse pounding suspense uh, action with uh, big larger than life characters you really care about who uh, are facing huge stakes. They have you know they the it's life and death. Their backs are up against the wall, and they'd better find a way to to rise to the challenge um, or die trying. So that's what I love to read, and I thought that's going to be what I want to write. 
Yeah, exactly. That's, I loved those books growing up and uh, my mom was a librarian. So I just grew up with books and a love of reading. And I was naturally gravitating towards things that I thought might be giving, might give me some information about what my future profession, what I wanted my future profession to be in mm -hmm. the profession of arms before, before writing. But then I fell in love with these books and I still have them all today. I still have all the paperbacks that I've read growing up and now I'm collecting them all first edition signed, oh, uh, you know, to nice. add to, to those. But I can tell you exactly where I was when I read each and every one of those novels. And I have such great memories of reading them and this, the magic in those pages. And so that's what I knew I was going to do after the military was write those, write those right. Right. I'm probably, you probably have memories too, like me, like what was better than, than an afternoon or a weekend to be in this world of a, of a big meaty, thriller and just feel like you were there on the, in the, in the scene with all those people. Yep. So yeah, that was, uh, if you had a mother as a librarian as well, my father had a, a car that he turned into a library. So oh, I don't wow. think that the, the university library liked seeing, knowing that he had like 45, <laughs> 145 books or something on all the seats, but uh, we thought that was just what everybody did. That's every, yeah. <laughs> well, we had a lot of books, that's for sure. And then uh, it, reading was just something that was, uh, it wasn't forced upon us. It was just natural. It was just what you did. Like we ate dinner together, we'd read and we'd go on hikes or whatever it was, but it was natural. It was, wasn't like, now is your time to read, sit in that chair and read. I want you to be a reader. It was just natural. And it was exactly, uh, we, we exactly. loved it, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I loved it and obviously still do today and had such a great, I had such great memories when I was reading this. It was kind of that same experience. And, uh, you know, a lot of times today I have to read, uh, for, for work, or I'm going to have someone on or, or whatever, whatever it is. And you just gotta, you gotta do it. Cause, cause it's, it's part of the, part of the deal. Um, but this was so enjoyable to read this. this that's what I'm talking about. That magic. Um, like when you talk about, you can't say what it is, like, what's that thing that makes a great thriller. And it's this, it's kind of like in, um, uh, what's, what's curly in that movie. Um, when he, when he's like the secret of life and it's this, and then he doesn't say what it is. Uh, it's kind of like, it's that, it's this one thing and you can't, it's this intangible. Uh, and I describe it as heart and they have mm -hmm. heart. Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's a and great that's what, way to put it. That's but thank you. Is. I'm so, I'm delighted that you enjoyed the novel. Oh, I, I really did. I really did. Um, and uh, in college though, you had a professor, you did take a class, um, Ron Hansen, and mm -hmm. he said that every novel has a beginning, a muddle and an end. And every ending should be surprising yet inevitable. And, right. uh, and I love all of that. And that stuck with you, I think. It did. Uh, at the time, uh, Ron Hansen was a was a TA when I took a creative writing class uh, in college. He went on later to write a, a lot of novels, including um, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, so uh, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. But uh, it was extremely helpful to keep these very simple things in mind as I was, uh, you know, like trying to fumble my way through through stories that that uh, it wasn't just the characters who were in a muddle, but it was the author, and that's okay. That you have to you have to fight your way through and figure out what the thing is. But the the surprising yet inevitable mm -hmm. bit it, it's it's stuck with me more than anything else. And if we think of our favorite movies, our favorite books, it's that ending that um, that uh, that tells us you know you 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 shock you're shocked you gasp. Uh, when you, when, when it happens, but then as you sit back, you think, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, of course, exactly. you know, it's the empire strikes back or, right. or, or whatever. But, yeah. uh, I've strived every, ever since to try to come up with endings that accomplish that, that, that that's what readers find really satisfying. 
Exactly. You have that resolution, but you also have, so, so it's almost what they want to happen, but it's a surprise and it's inevitable. I, I love that too, how you, how you go back to that for each novel. And you do also share some advice in here, uh, how to write a mystery right here. And you're, you're like chapter one in here. You're right there after Lee Child's introduction. I think you're pretty, you're right. You're right in there. Um, and I love this too. Uh, Lee Child has some stuff in here, kind of like what we what we talked about here about the two things that make a mystery, but you don't know what they, you can't tell what they, right. what they are. And then, uh, and then you're in here too. And you, you break down, uh, and I love you had nine, you started with 10, but then you took out the, <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, so fantastic. Rulers need to be lean and mean. So I dropped the 10th. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Cause that's one of the, one of your, your rules, uh, in here. And I love that. So people that are interested in, uh, in that little wisdom might want to pick this up right here. It's and, a great, uh, it's a great book. It's mm-hmm. a big, it's an anthology of essays by uh, mystery writers of America. So if you, if you're into writing, if you want to figure it out, it's just, it's just chock full of great, uh, ideas and advice. Yeah, no, it really is. And, uh, and yeah, Lee Child was wonderful to me as I was stepping into this world. And I know that, uh, that Stephen King, um, I think he picked up China Lake on a trip to, to London, uh, where you happened to be. Um, and uh, so how did all that come about? We had the same uh, British publisher because I was published first in Britain because that's where I was living. And uh, naturally, they send Stephen King everything (laughs) that they publish, which apparently he uh, had, you know, a closet full of boxes stacked to the to the ceiling Mm -hmm. with books they'd sent him. But he was heading on a trip to the UK for a book launch and needed something for for the flight. And I wish I could tell you that. He pulled China Lake from the box and read the first paragraph and, you know, like was overcome with the, with the suspense and the the writing. But apparently he looked at it and said, well, that font's nice and big. It's not going to strain my eyes <laughs> on a long flight. So he stuck it in his carry on, but he read it. And by the time he landed, he really liked it. And he told the publisher he'd read it. So they gave him the rest of my the books in that my first series, the Evan Delaney series, he found out that I did not at the time have an American publisher, uh, which was a source of uh, frustration for me at the time that uh, my books weren't on the shelves at home. And he uh, he was just extremely generous in paying it forward. Not he And he is not just to me, but to so many other writers that he wrote a blog post about the books, and then he wrote a column for Entertainment Weekly about the books, urging people to try to find them, which was just extraordinary. And, you know, he's a big dog. It was, uh, let's say, 48 hours after that column was published, uh, you know, every publisher that had said no was, was suddenly <laughs> changing their mind uh, and uh, and uh, and interested in talking to me, so that he's really the one that uh, opened the door for me in in American publishing and made has made a, a huge huge difference. And he's he's a he's a genuine person and uh, really nice and normal in person as yeah. well. Yeah, that's always great when you meet someone. You're just a normal person. Anything with Chris Pratt in the in the series, like mm-hmm. he just is a normal guy. You'd want to have a beer with, or want to have a coffee with, and um, so it's great when you meet people that uh, that are kind of larger larger than life celebrity right. types, and then they're just normal people like everybody like everybody else. But I know your books would have made it certainly without Stephen King. They were already published in Great Britain. You know, it was just a matter of time till the right person saw it in the U.S. and said, "Wow, we've got some we've got a gold mine here." Well, thanks, and the right person did see it. So I <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter if that. that one person was Stephen King, but he also, he wrote, simply put, the finest crime suspense series I've come across in the last 20 years. That's pretty cool. 
if you don't think that knocked me flat, <laughs> uh, it certainly did. So, um, yeah, again, I can't say enough good about uh, about everything that he is uh, he has been willing to to do to help me and other writers. So yeah. it's uh, you know I'm I'm extremely happy that uh, he's in the world. Yeah, no, amazing, amazing guy. Obviously, with on writing, obviously we talked about this for writers to 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 read, or mm-hmm. um, obviously on writing, which is like an autobiography, and is uh, it's it's incredible. Um, and uh, and it, I've heard you say that it's important for your protagonists to have a sense of humor, and um, and I I think that's important as well because if you're going to spend however much time it's going to take you to read uh, a book or listen to it today, um, I mean, you want to spend it with someone who's fun, who you like. Like, why would you want to spend time with someone who's like negative and not fun to be around, not clever, not thoughtful? Uh, I, I, so I don't know. So I, so I have that in mind when I, when I write my characters and I did from the very beginning um, that if, hey, if you're going to choose who you spend time with, who are you going to choose? Uh, exactly. Just in life in general, are you going to choose negative people who, who, who bring you no. down? Or are you, gonna you bring, don't want someone who's someone, a trip. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Choose someone who adds value to your life. It is, is funny and positive and encouraging. Like, so, so I, I think about that as I, as I write, but um, was that a conscious or just a natural decision? Because I, I know you're funny. And if you read like just, the, <laughs> you know, you're, you're opening this, it's you, I know you have this sense of humor. You're funny in your, uh, in, in real life, but uh, was it natural that your character Characters had that from the beginning, or was it a conscious choice? Both. I I can only go so long without finding something ridiculous and wanting to and, and laughing at it uh, or with it and and wanting to make some kind of a uh, a, a quip about it. I think I had um, read when I was getting the idea that I really did want to try to start writing. I had recently read uh, Sue Grafton's uh, early novels, which which are full of 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 wit and uh, really clever. And I had read, I had discovered Carl Hyacin, mm-hmm. uh, who, who is hilarious and Janet Ivanovich. And I did, I wasn't going to write a comic novel, but I thought, okay, if you're willing to go for it and this is what you can get away with on the page, then there's no reason I can't stick something, um, mm-hmm. something humorous into the, into the story, e- either as a, as a break, as a moment that relieves relieves the tension, or um, does does some little some little bit that uh, lets readers catch their breath, and uh, it's always a joy to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, Janet's funny. Uh, we did an event with uh, Barnes and Noble together when her last book came out, um, mm-hmm. and so she's she's hilarious <laughs> in real life too, like off camera and everything too. She's just funny. <laughs> um, but um, uh, so I started as well. But you have also so you have four standalone novels. Um, and then you have four in the Joe Beckett series, mm-hmm. five in the Evan Delaney series, mm-hmm. three in the uh, Unsub series that uh, that I mentioned. And I didn't know that it meant unknown subject. Like before I read this, I didn't know that they, you know, that it was. Now, I, now I'm, I'm shocked. Unsub. I I'm like, shocked. I, I didn't know that either. With all the reading that I've done, uh, yes. I'm like, I should, I should know that. But yeah, unknown subject. So for those that don't know. Unsub, yes, it's uh, FBI lingo. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And um, so because they're kind of similar, three, four, five, like that, before switching up or, or moving around, um, do you like writing those different series? There's four to five, like seem like the right uh, number, or was that just kind of random that you shifted gears? Or what is that? Uh, what, what, it's what's kind that of, like? yeah, it's kind of random. Both both my first two series kind of came to like a, a turning point uh, or or like a, a wrap up of a, mm-hmm. of a, a long running theme. Mm-hmm. And um, there was, there are so many stories that I 
I really was aching to tell other thriller uh, storylines that did not fit with the characters mm-hmm. that I was writing about. Evan Delaney is a journalist. Uh, Joe Beckett is a she's a forensic psychiatrist who consults for uh, the San Francisco Police Department. And there are stories that don't lend themselves to having them as protagonists. Uh, mm-hmm. the, a big right. standalone story that that really wraps up that is an entire thing on its own. So that's uh, also when I when I would write standalones and readers like readers like to mix it up too. Uh, I mean, when you get a great series, when they when they just dial it in, like you know, uh, like like your books, then then they they they're they're at you all the time. I'm sure they they're just dying for the next one. But uh, and sometimes you want to keep going, and sometimes uh, you or your publisher might say, you know, what else do you have in the what do you else have in your you know in your back pocket? Let's uh, let's see what else is going on. Interesting. So I asked that for uh, personal and professional reasons um, because I have a few others out there like that, just like as you described that might be better suited for a uh, for a different protagonist, a different set of characters to explore. So I have a few of those out there. I'm not quite sure if I'm, uh, this next one is the same main character, James Reese, continuing the same, some of those same three themes and tying up some loose ends in this one that I'm working on now in book six. Um, but I have some other ideas out there. So I'm kind of, we'll, we'll see, we'll see. I've had complete creative control up to now. My publisher and agent, they've never suggested anything. Um, mm-hmm. so I've had complete, and I didn't know that going in. I kind of, my picture of agents is what I've seen from movies in Hollywood, uh, about like entourage <laughs> or Californication or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of my, my vision of what an agent was like, uh, and, and was what that industry was like. And, uh, it's turned out that's not my experience. Um, I've had complete creative control, not even a hint to ever like, like change up something or soften something up or it's been complete creative control, which has been, been fantastic. But, yeah. um, I'm going to remember what you said right there. So I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking things through for the, uh, for the future here. Um, and speaking of that, so writing routine, um, daily writing routines. And then like over the year, do you have like, Hey, you're working for six months, like John Grisham and then going, taking a break for six months and then coming back. Or is it a constant thing that you're always adapting to? Or what's, uh, what's like a daily versus a year long type of a plan. So like a tactical versus a strategic type vision when you're looking at your day and then your year. Right. Uh, strategically, I have been in the fortunate position of having a publishing contract ever since my first novel was, uh, you know, was bought, was, was, was sold, which means that uh, you quickly discover as a writer that you may have spent two years, three years, five years getting it, getting this one, you know, polished up like a, like a disco Uh ball. Uh, But as soon as that uh, is in the editor's hands, they say, okay, uh, (laughs) you have a two book contract. The next one is due and 12 months or 15 exactly. months and they say and can you do that and you're just you just smile and manage to mask your panic <laughs> as you yeah. as you say of course I can so um quickly the the discipline and the planning become important that you understand how long it's going to take you to to really nail down the the, the concept the storyline the characters how long it's going to take you to write a first draft uh, how long it's going to take you to to revise that big steaming pile of <laughs> of, of whatever yeah. it is that you, that is your first draft and turn it into to something better. So I taught myself how to write uh, a novel over the course of uh, over the course of a year. And when I am drafting the first draft, and this was something that I, I had to learn as well, like writing on airplanes. Um, I used to like try to try to write a thousand words a day for at least five days a week when, when 
And then when the kids are running around at home on weekends, it's just really difficult to, but I uh, was talking then to my uh, friend, Brett Battles, who's also a thriller writer. He writes the Jonathan Quinn series, The Cleaner, um, and some science fiction as well. And, and he said, yeah, I just did my first draft of the new book in like 10 weeks. I said, you did not. He said, yes, I did. <laughs> I said, no, you didn't. How did you do that? He goes, I get up early and I and I just write two, 3,000 words a day and I don't care how it sounds. I put the story down on the page and I, I, finish, the, I finish the draft and then it's there and I can fix it. Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe I should try that. So I was I was stunned to find out if I just if I was determined to sit down and uh, and write and get two thousand words a day down on paper at least five days a week doesn't have to match you know you don't have to hit it every day but if, but for me just spewing that story mm-hmm. uh, really helped and this is after I've spent a month or two writing an outline so that's why I was able to to learn how to how to write quickly because if I have an idea a strong idea in my head where the story begins. Where, where the major turning points are and uh, really what the, the what what is a powerful ending for it mm-hmm. then i have i have you know signposts along the way that i can that, that i can write toward because i'm not what they call a pantser right me neither uh, no it i find myself i mean i've tried it and uh, mm. found myself so far in the weeds that i was strangling <laughs> yeah no, I got to have the outline as well. I need to know where I'm going, even if it's going to shift a little bit throughout the, the process. But I love having that uh, beginning, middle, and end. I pretty do pretty much do a three-part, not in the last book, but uh, three parts and a prologue and an epilogue to wrap things up. Enough resolution so that people are are happy, but a little bit more to make them want to get that next book. Um, no but, kidding. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, maybe a little more than just a, a morsel in this last ending. But uh, but that's kind of, I, I do that same thing. I have to have the, uh, the outline there. I like it, even knowing that it's going to shift once I stop working on the outline and start writing the actual narrative, turning it into the narrative, I can go back for a little bit and then I'll fill some things in just so I have like a visual representation on the, Mm -hmm. on the outline. Um, so, so yeah, the pants are, I don't know how you would do that. You could just like maybe write forever, but, uh, but yeah, I I would. Yeah. (laughs) But I I mean, some people, I think the people who can do it have a really strong sense of the story somewhere Mm -hmm. already inside of them. And that's why they can, if they do it successfully, it's because they have a very, strong compass that, that, mm-hmm. that they know how to get through it. But, uh, um, I don't know about you, but then I, I really find great satisfaction in writing the second draft and revising that, that big steaming pile. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually, someone asked me that yesterday in an interview, they said, um, like what's your, something along the lines of what's your favorite part of the process or something, or what's the most fulfilling part of the process? I think that was it. Yeah. What was the most, um, rewarding, fulfilling part of the process? And I said, it is, uh, when you finish that first draft one and then that final draft, like those two, those two right there. Uh, cause mm-hmm. you've got it down. Oh, great. And then you still have a lot of work ahead, obviously, but then when that one's done and you've hit send for the final time and that is off to the publisher. Okay. Like those two feelings are very similar. First draft, mm-hmm. final draft, um, but right. the ends of those <laughs> two, mm-hmm. I guess are the most rewarding, but I love all of it. I love the editing. I love figuring out the problems on the page and figuring out, uh, why is this going to work? Is the reader going to go along with this? Or how am I ever going to get them out of this situation? Like, I love, I love every part of, of, of the process. Coming up with the title, I love that. Coming up with uh, the outline, the theme, a one-page executive summary, the whole thing. And, and I find I get to know the characters really mm-hmm. through dialogue. 
And because on my outline at the top, I'll have a list of characters just to make sure that some of the names aren't, they don't rhyme or there's like exactly. you know, all that sort of thing. But, uh, but then I don't know that I might just have like, let's say John Smith, secret service agent, uh, bad guy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really know that person yet. And then I'll get to know them as they are in dialogue with another character for whatever reason. And I really exactly. love getting to know the characters that way, both the, well, the good ones. Of and course, the, the dialogue is action by other means. It's conflict by other means. Mm-hmm. And it reveals everything about someone's, uh, their goals, their personality, mm-hmm. their, their, their background, how they see the world. So it's an extremely fun mm-hmm. and, uh, vivid way to to bring a character to life. I think we're pretty lucky, you know. I really feel super lucky that that uh, I'm able to do this for for a living. It's, ex- oh it's fantastic. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I wake up every day feeling so fortunate um that I get to do this and that the the characters and the books are resonating and yeah, it's a great uh, that certainly is a is a great feeling. Um and then I know it's a couple of the books like the unsub maybe it's the series or one of the books and then dark Cor- dark corners of the night maybe some of them might be coming to screen at some point. Well, we're, we're going to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, it was, yes, um, uh, the, the third novel, The Dark Corners of the Night, was bought by Amazon Studios for nice. development as a television series. So we, we shall be. see. You know you know nothing, something about, uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> about, uh, about that. So, and congratulations on The Terminalist, Thank by you. the way. Yes, Thank you. No. It's been fun. It's it's been a really fun process. I learned so much over the last year that I think is impacting my writing. I can point to certain aspects of the last novel where that whole process over the last two years, bringing this to life, learning what I learned from the writer's room and from the screenwriter, particularly the the showrunner, who is also the lead writer on the the whole thing. Uh, Just the lessons that I learned from him about storytelling and how you do that in a visual medium versus the page. Mm. And I've taken certain elements and and applied it, um, if not consciously, certainly subconsciously. Um, right. but it was a great, it was a, a, a fun process, but these would be your, your series would be incredible to, to see on, on screen. So, um, mm-hmm. so I hope that happens. And, uh, t- time-wise I'm not, I mean, it, it took a lot of time, but I, I, I think you, you, you said once that you'd like to be a part of that process as, as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, yeah. It, because just as you mentioned, it's, uh, it's a different way of storytelling and I'm completely okay with understanding that, uh, that a television show or a movie is an adaptation of, mm-hmm. of the yes. books we write. And, you know, you hear people say, oh, the, you know, that's not going to be as good as the book. I'm thinking, well, the book's still there. It didn't yeah. go anywhere. Enjoy <laughs> the books the, that, uh, that, you know, telling it in a, on the screen is just, is, it has to be told a different way mm-hmm. and that's fine. And if you don't want someone to attempt that, then you don't have to let them. But, that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. I'm okay with it. Yep. I think the, because uh, usually they like to, it seems like anyway, kind of get rid of the author right away. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, they don't want you on set saying, you ruined my vision. Uh, but in my first, uh, but Antoine Fuqua, the director, and then Chris Pratt, um, they wanted me involved from the beginning. So they set up a phone call with David DiGilio, the showrunner back in December of 2019, I think was the first time we we spoke. And kind of, I knew in that call that I would have to kind of give my, uh, a little bit of my background and show that I understood that this was an adaptation, not an exact telling chapter by chapter visually. Um, mm-hmm. So as a student of, of uh, both the thriller genre and then just of film and television as a consumer, as a fan, mm-hmm. um, I got to talk about that and I brought up different examples. And of course, First Blood written in 1972 by David Morrell, very different than the 1983 film with Sylvester Stallone, both classics mm-hmm. on their own. And First Blood has not been out of print for 50 years. It came out uh, May of 72. So it just turned 50 uh, 
this past May, um, yeah. but very different than the film. Uh, so I, mm -hmm. I got to talk about that, put him at ease, and then we've been essentially inseparable throughout the rest of the process. And uh, here we talk every day. So um, as again, to include, we're going to talk later today about the uh, the uh, second season, if there is one. So we've got the outline going right. for that Fingers and crossed. all that. So yeah. yeah, we'll see. But even no. if there's not a second season, <laughs> then I'm thrilled that we at least got one, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was a really interesting process. So I, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing yours brought to, brought to life. And uh, I know you'll have a great time being part of that process because it is a lot yeah. of fun. Mm -hmm. Great. Really collaborative, really collaborative, much different than sitting down just solo, knowing that it's all on your shoulders in front of that uh, computer screen. But what I like about that is that, and particularly with my agent and my publisher, like I said, like, I don't feel any political pressure. Like, oh, they said they'd like this. Oh, I don't want to ruin the relationship with them. It's so good. I guess I have to include it. Like, there's none of that. Um, mm -hmm. But you do have to kind of consider that in the collaborative nature of a writing room. And everyone's bringing their own personal experiences to this, their background, maybe mm -hmm. preconceived notions, some bias, whatever it is. Like, it's a, it's a group. And now it's a team. And uh, I mean, there's a team in publishing with agents and publishers and publicists and all that stuff, but not when you're in front of that computer. Right. But with this, exactly. when you're doing a, when a screenplay, uh, it is definitely collaborative, but you got to do, you got a first taste of collaboration right here with this. Um, so how did this come about anyway? I mean, uh, did they reach out? to you because of your other work being so amazing and successful? And then they just, did Michael Mann, was he a fan and then reach out? Or how did this all come about? Like that initial phone call? Um, uh, I, Michael had long, long wanted to write uh, a prequel slash sequel to Heat, his classic mm -hmm. 1995 um, crime saga yeah. thriller. And uh he and I have uh, share uh, share a literary agent. Got it. So Michael was uh, Michael is an extraordinarily accomplished, an experienced, brilliant writer, mm -hmm. and all his all his uh, his writing has has been in screen and television. And as we've been talking about, uh, screenwriting and novel writing are two different disciplines. Mm -hmm. So he uh, was interested in collaborating with someone who uh, who had experience putting 100,000 words down or 120,000 words down on the page and you had to pace a novel and all, everything about, about what goes into uh, turning uh, an idea into a book. Yeah. So uh, he had read Unsub and uh, talked to my agent uh, and said that uh, he wanted to, to talk to me as well. So we got on the phone and spent a couple of hours discussing uh, what he saw uh, as uh, what his ambitions were for a story that expanded the very iconic, but, uh, but compressed mm -hmm. and hyper, uh, hyper uh, intense uh, story that is heat, yeah. which takes place over, you know, a few, a few weeks in Los Angeles. And it's just absolutely just brilliant. But uh, we talked about, you know, what did he want to, what did he want to do? He wanted to tell the story of the, of the characters uh, before they come on the stage at Heat, the years before. Mm -hmm. I mean, I presume uh, a lot of people know that, that Heat is about um, uh, a bank robbery crew led by a master thief named Neil McCauley, played by Robert De Niro, uh, and a relentless, brilliant uh, robbery homicide detective in Los Angeles, uh, who hunts the who hunts them played by Al Pacino and it's about their conflict and uh, the the collision of uh, of their worlds uh, after a after a bank robbery turns the streets of downtown Los Angeles into a, a war zone essentially yeah. 
And I, I talked to Michael and he, uh, we talked a lot about the characters, about where these people had come from, um, how had they grown up, what, what was Neil and his, uh, and, and, and his, uh, his crew doing in the years before they took down this big bank job in Los Angeles, where had Hannah come from? You know, he had a background, uh, um, in Chicago, uh, the Chicago police department. And before that, uh, in the Marines and grad school and, and all kinds of things. And, uh, how did he become a hunter of uh, dangerous felons mm-hmm. and what would happen in the years after the, this climactic explosive finale of heat to the survivors um, who are left wounded, uh, uh, isolated, uh, desperate to, to, to escape. Uh, what's what's going to happen to, to them? Mm-hmm. Where are they going to go and what's going to ha- go on with their lives? So I uh, talked to Michael a long time about uh, those characters about the new characters you'd have to bring in for uh, for a prequel, the other people who are in these, you know, in Macaulay and Hannah's lives, and uh, Krista Hurlis's life. He's played by Val Kilmer in the in the film. Um, where 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 could I take with him this this story that I just absolutely adored, mm-hmm. and um, expand it into? Um, something something bigger that was that con- maintained the the depth with the characters but also uh brought everything that we know we love in a Michael Mann movie all that explosive dynamic action mm-hmm. <laughs> that uh that just takes your breath away and um I I had to, I had to take a breath because you know working with an icon I've loved Michael's work since for forever, mm-hmm. I think I was. I don't know how old I was when I saw the Jericho Mile, oh, wow. uh, and then you know, uh, Thief, Miami yes. Vice, uh, Manhunter, Last uh, of the Mohicans, yeah, Last of the Mohicans, oh, Heat, Collateral. Um, here, here's here's somebody that I've just uh, in utter admiration of, and mm-hmm. he's willing to trust his characters and his story. To, to me to work with him, which I felt as a real weight and responsibility yeah. um, that I needed to make sure that I could understand these people as the way he did and that I could tell their story right. Yeah. So um, I did take a deep breath and then I thought, I've always wanted to write a heist novel. <laughs> always wanted to write a big heist novel. And when would I ever? have another opportunity to write uh to write a heist novel with with someone who wrote the the best heist movie yeah. ever so yeah. I, I i just leapt on it uh-huh. and uh and we started uh, we started working together um this was in this was july 2020 mm. so uh covid was raging and we did not have an opportunity to get together for a very long time so we did uh all our planning and uh, outlining and uh, rough the rough draft from a distance. I'm I'm in Austin. Uh, he's in Los Angeles. Or a lot of the time that when we were first working together, he was in um, Japan filming Tokyo Vice. Oh wow! So we were on the phone a lot with the uh, with the you know juggling time zone differences and uh, sending the. Uh, outlines and notes and chapters back and forth uh until we got a got a rough draft written and then 
uh, last summer was the my chance to finally get out and sit down across the desk from him in his office and hash out uh, hash out revisions and that was um that was terrific i mean we'd been working together very closely by then for you know for a year but yeah. being able to sit there and watch watch him like take a piece of paper and start scribbling on it and like we got to change this whole last section here and then oh, coming wow. up with you know with new ideas uh, it was uh uh intense and exhilarating. And I can't tell you how much I loved it. Oh, wow. I can only imagine. Um, you know, that, that first phone call, what did you do to, to prep for it? Were you already a Heat fan? And then you watch it again? And did you come up with some ideas that you could kind of, you know, look down to and say, okay, if he goes this direction, I have this, this, this. Like, what did you do to prep for that first call? Absolutely. I, I, I had already watched Heat several times, and I'm sure I watched Heat several more <laughs> within a period of a couple of days before we got on the phone. I, I, knew from t- from speaking to my agent that that Michael was uh, interested in writing the the novel as both a prequel bef- you know the years before heat and the year and a sequel the years after heat um so i needed to make sure that i um understood uh, where these characters might have who what we knew of their background already and how we could write a a gripping prequel section that didn't just um, kind of like go through the exposition of how they, you know, that, you know, Hannah, you know, Hannah rises through the, through the ranks in the the Chicago PD and then Neil uh, does his time on the yard at Folsom. Mm -hmm. uh, We didn't want to do that. He really wanted to bring the characters to life in, in, um, in massive action set pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's how, that's how it is. Like you talked about dialogue. That's how you get to know the characters and you get to know them through action, what Mm -hmm. they do. So um, we talked out, just kind of sketched out the before and the after new characters, Mm -hmm. um, how they would play into the, the story. And every story has to have um, a a strong antagonist. Cause uh, if you've got, We've got twin protagonists, or triple protagonists in in Heat too. We've got Neil, Hannah, and Chris, and uh, there's they've got to be fighting against something that's oh, trying to and he's bad. Just them. He's, he's so bad. bad. Like reading oh, that, that first you. introduction to him, um, like it's almost uncomfortable to read. You, you know, like but you had to have it in there. You have because you you, you, you have do. to. But it's oh, like especially as a parent, you're like, oh, it's just. Oh, I know. It's I so know. tough. It, to, but, to, yes, but yeah, he a, makes you definitely uh, despise him, I guess is the best. Uh, I, you know, that warms my heart. Thank you so much for <laughs> saying that. <laughs> yes, there is a, uh, the, the antagonist is named Otis Wardell. He leads a crew of home invasion robbers. Mm-hmm. And Hannah is, uh, is, is after him because they, like you say, he's bad. That's bad things. He likes to go in. He's not like he's not a Highline burglar who likes to slip in and out uh, seamlessly without letting anybody know he's been there until they figure out that their diamonds are gone. Uh, he likes to go in and take control of the house because that's that's what uh, psychologically um, turns him on. So uh, he's he's bad, but he has to be bad. Yeah. He has to be oh really yeah, bad. yeah. You need it in there. You know, it's good that you're un- uncomfortable, I and mean, that's what makes a good good novel is that you're like, you know, you're you're feeling these emotions, and you're so, you know, especially when it's that that bad person. And then I love the when there's the uh, 
part of that gang. I want to, don't want to give too much away, but I just want to tell you how much I love this, this part. Cause you feel as a, you know, it's the things that you can't do in real life. And I feel like that, what that also makes you makes, um, viewers of a movie or readers of a thriller, like really connect with it. Cause you can't, when you're wronged in real life, there are these things you can't do because of societal norms and laws <laughs> and things like that. Um, but when you have Hannah on that rooftop with someone who lied to him, you know, and that also makes for yeah. a complicated character, which I wanted to compliment Absolutely. you on as well. They're all complicated characters. I mean, yeah. you know who the bad one is. Uh, mm-hmm. And the other ones, I would say, are complicated. And I Thank love you. it. Yeah. Thank you. They're all human beings exactly. and people are people are complex. So, yes. And uh, yeah, so over the course of uh, developing the story, we figured out uh, what was going to happen in the prequel section. And by the way, the prequel and sequel sections intertwine. Yes. You jump back Genius. and forth from yeah. 1988 to oh, yeah. 96. Yeah, I wrote it down yeah. even. I mean, I love the nonlinear rundown and how it all comes together. So prologue, Heat, a little bit of a, you know, a little uh, get you up to, to speed for, I don't know, the one person who didn't see Heat, maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, or haven't seen it multiple, multiple times. Uh, then you're in 1995, right after Heat. Then 1988, a little bit of Vegas, and then Chicago. And that scene I just talked about, I have some friends in Chicago in law enforcement and in legal circles. Mm. And I don't think that scene will surprise them from things that I've heard about Chicago, especially back in the day. These are all like older guys that grew up in exactly. like 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s type Chicago law enforcement. Like, whew. Well, yeah, Michael, Michael Mann grew up in Chicago. He is he is Chicago to his core and was uh, very good friends with uh, with a number of detectives mm-hmm. in the Chicago police force, including Chuck Adamson and Dennis Farina. Mm-hmm. Um and had no illusions about uh, what uh, what the what the department was like, even as they were taking criminals off the street. Yeah, but, um, no, but I, love it's, that part. Uh, I was thinking about my buddy, my friends back there that are you know getting up there in age now. But I'm I, I was thinking about some of the stories they've told me, and then I love. Then you go 1995, 96. We're in Paraguay. Amazing. I love it. I mean, fantastic to 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 go down there and. It, and then 1988 again, then 96, then 2000, and it all comes together, all these different storylines in a way mm-hmm. that I'll, I'm, I'm certain I'm going to take some, some notes on here. Uh, oh, well, like thank I, you. Yeah, for sure. This is going to impact how I, how I write, I'm sure, because I'm a student. I'm always a student. I was always a student oh, in the so SEAL teams, and I'm always a student well, of, of this. Well, believe me, like working with Michael, I was I was a student of, of understanding uh, how you structure such a such a such a big story mm-hmm. that takes place over decades and continents and the research that he does. I mean, he's legendary for uh, really wanting to immerse himself in the culture of whatever subject he's uh, he's he's writing about to, to find a, some kernel of authenticity that will, will resonate with uh, an audience. And the legend is accurate. So um, in the Chicago section of the book, there's a, um, there's a, Neil and his crew are doing a bank tunnel job. And we wanted to make sure we knew how to do that. So mm-hmm. Michael's like, yeah, let's get on the phone with this guy. He's a, <laughs> he's a retired bank robber. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> wow. But uh, extremely enlightening. He was a, a, a very gentlemanly um, man in his 80s who uh, did not want to use any kind of language with me, but uh, was happy to tell me exactly how you would uh, how you would steal cars off of a, a service lot at the at the dealership and how you'd get through a concrete wall and uh, what what you need to watch out for in Chicago to make sure that the cops aren't coming around and all that. So. Um, if you if you need to to know anything about yeah, uh, how I'll to keep that in mind. That. Yeah. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind for sure. 
Right. Yeah. And then uh, to the, then the, the action moves to this uh, uh, score that Neil and his crew take down um, in Mexicali, yeah. which, uh, again, Michael was an extremely generous and open minded collaborator. So he said, let's uh, let's do this big score. This is what he saw this as a as an action yeah. set piece. Very thrilling, extremely tense, but uh, was uh, totally open to letting me take the first crack at at how to uh, to block it out and uh, and decide to uh, to set it up and everything. And you know, he had pages and pages of comments and revisions afterwards. But that was extremely fun uh, to write. If you can talk about people blasting their way through a um, through a motel yeah. run by a drug cartel, yeah, fun. But yeah, but uh, sitting at my desk, it certainly was. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I loved all that. It's interesting. So I'm working with a, uh, another Hollywood director um, on uh, on, a, on a, a screenplay thing, and it, it might never come to fruition. But in our conversations that uh, that we're talking, it's kind of similar. Like he sees it, you know, like a director would see it, and sees these uh, these different scenes the way that uh, that you're describing right here. It's very very similar. And the conversations I've had with him uh, seem just like the ones you're having with uh, with Michael Mann, and the same kind of notes and uh, the things. Oh, oh yeah, and then uh, we're gonna take this turn here, and then all of a sudden things shift and you're like, wait, where did that come from? And it's just, right. uh, it's great. It's such a funny. Fun exactly. Experience. And his, his imagination, um, is, uh, is, is extremely expansive and certainly mm -hmm. on the page, you, you don't have to have a budget for, for props right. or for, for, for closing down, yep. uh, you know, the streets of Los Angeles for, for weekends at a time, you can do whatever you want. Yep. And so I would come up with an idea and he would come back with something amplified to like, uh, five times over. And I'm like, yeah. Okay. I see that now, but uh, I, I don't want to give away any spoilers yeah, yeah. No, at no. all, except I, I will say that as a, as a fan of heat and as the author of this book, that I think Michael and I put on the page, the kind of action that, that rivals uh, anything he had oh, done yes. before in heat or collateral or Miami vice oh, that, yes. uh, that it's that it's that it's there, and I hope readers will love it. Oh, I can confirm that they will love it, and I can confirm that just like you said, that it's uh, it is it's I mean huge action, and it's awesome, but it's but it's suspenseful, and you're kind of wondering how is this all going to come together uh, as a reader and as a student. Obviously, I'm thinking the same things. How is this all going to going to come together? But I, I know it is because it's you and it's Michael Mann, so I know something awesome is going to happen. And but it's not just great, you exceed expectations. And when you go into something where your expectations are high, particularly taking an iconic film like Heat and turning it into a novel, Heat 2, that goes from before and to after and ties all these storylines together, that is no small undertaking. So to exceed expectations, uh, like that's that's tough. I, I mean, that's, that's amazing that you exceeded my expectations uh, as a fan, obviously, of the thriller genre and of you and of Heat and Michael Mann and to exceed all those expectations because my expectations were high and you guys blew them away. <laughs> well, that means a whole that really means a lot to me because, I mean, you are you are a modern master of, uh, of, of, of the thriller. So uh, so I can't tell you how much that means. Um, you've you've mentioned that you know people you talk you talk about people who are fans of of heat you hope they will like it i think that anybody who is a fan of heat i hope that oh, yes. yeah they are going to oh, they yes. are going to love it i will say that it, it is a standalone thriller mm -hmm. so uh if you don't know oh, heat, yeah. you should number one watch it tonight mm -hmm. but uh, you can pick this book up and it's a and just it just 
launches you straight into this into the story and i i think that uh you can just uh, you can just roll with it yeah. and uh, be right on board uh, last month i went to uh, a screening of the new 4k ultra hd heat oh wow um at uh, the Tribeca Film Festival um, in in New York City, and got to take my son as my date nice. and everything, so it was it was extremely cool. But this gigantic theater was packed with with mega fans of Heat. Um, but it became clear as we went through the movie that there was there were a lot of people who were seeing it for the first time because really? there were moments. There's there's even quiet moments when when a plot turns. Uh, a shocking yet quiet moment that there were gasps that filled the theater. Interesting. And I thought, wow, that's the power of this. That's the power of this story that, uh, and there's still, there's still like new people to come and, uh, and be brought into it. So uh, it's, it's still, it still hits really hard. And um, yeah, Interesting. I think everybody's going to love it. You know, I, had, I hadn't thought about that. I hadn't thought of like people that are just getting to an age where they can see something like that. So I didn't really think about somebody, let's say uh, an eighth grader or something, or somebody in high school, maybe that's been distracted mm-hmm. by their devices and not, you know, because different generations. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really think about, uh, about that. So to discover that movie for the first time, especially that way, seeing it on the big screen again, because I went, I remember when I saw it on the big screen uh, when it came out and uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly who I was with, where I was, the exact theater and how special that was. Um, actually, I had Danny Trejo on the podcast um, last summer. Oh my gosh. And, uh, yes. Yeah, and we got to talk about it uh, a bit as well. Uh, and I actually thought oh, about that's that fantastic. Um, because he showed and, his family. And Trejo, Trejo's character is in is in the novel. I know as well. we talked about about that because it's in his uh, autobiography that came out about how uh, they used his actual his uncle's name, I think it was, uh, as the mm. character's name. Mm-hmm. And uh, but yeah, so I saw that in there, and I thought back to our, our conversation that we had last summer about his time doing Heat and uh, how his family saw. I don't want to ruin it, but I don't know the one person who hasn't seen he is actually listening to this. Um, when he gets taken out, his family saw that and it was a little jarring um, for mm-hmm. them. And then in the terminal list, I might have a little cameo or something similar happens. And my daughter saw it this last weekend, uh, just yesterday or the day before. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but she seemed okay. She seemed okay with it. I talked with her about it uh, ahead of time. How old is she? 17. So she's he's oh, older. Okay. So yeah. Okay. But still, I was just kind of like, oh. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 um, it takes a little negotiating to let your kids read your books for the first time or, or see, some, see yeah, something, see something like, that. like that. Cause it's so visceral when you see it in real life and the way mine did, we had this, uh, the squib is in this headrest. I'm in the shootout with Chris and I have to throw my head at a certain time when the guy presses the button and the blood goes up all over the thing. And it's, uh, mm-hmm. so anyway, I, I prepped her for it ahead of time and it was, it was okay. But, uh, but was it conscious to have a theme of time running through this? I mean, it's by its very nature being nonlinear, but there's a couple sentences in here when you're talking about time and time to me has always been, I've been for whatever reason attracted to watches since I was a little kid and the mechanics that goes into that because it makes you think about time and this finite amount of it that we have on earth. And we don't know exactly when it's going to end, which is uh, why I think I'm so, so driven um, to get better at my craft, whether it's a, a sentence or a paragraph or a book or a Instagram post or a blog or a screenplay or whatever it, whatever it might be, because people are trusting me with that time that they're, they're never going to get back. Um, okay. so I was curious, was that theme of time that comes up here a, a, a few times, was that conscious or was that just by the nature of the, of the, the novel and the action and the events? It, it was conscious, uh, in, in heat in the film, Neil, uh, the Pacino, I mean, excuse me, the De Niro character uh, tells the woman he's in love with um, 
he's trying to convince her to to go with him to to escape Los Angeles, even now that she's finally realized who he really is and what he really does. And um, he tells her, I know that life is short. Whatever time we get is luck. And um, he really, the character really feels that. Um, And Michael had uh, talked to uh, real convicts back when he was uh, filming the Jericho Mile, his first uh, his first feature, which takes place uh, in Folsom Prison. And he filmed it there. And he said that uh, back in that era, uh, there was a, a strong educational component uh, to, to try to, to offer, uh, you know, the, the cons something to something to do uh, and that men would take seriously uh, the idea that they needed to figure out what life was about. Uh, I'm doing time. What does that mean? What is time? What, why am I here? What am I going to do with it? So they would go to the prison library and say, what, what do you got on your, on, your, on your book cart that tells me about the meaning of time uh, in, a, in a philosophical way? And, you know, the librarian would hand them Camus or something like that. So it, I think he created these characters who are aware, certainly in their line of work, um, that things can end at any at any moment. And uh, how are you going to how are you going to live? That for Neil and for Hannah, uh, the way they live is a conscious choice. He was very clear that these two people, especially, are are completely conscious about themselves and their lives and what they want to do with the time mm. they have. So it did become uh, a bit of a, a recurring image in the in the story. Yeah, no, it sure certainly did. It's something I think about personally. Uh, it's in all of my novels, in particular in this last one, In the Blood, but it's just, uh, yeah, something I, I, I think about quite, uh, quite frequently. Um, but, uh, and also, did you, when you're writing this, did you think of Al Pacino's voice? as you're writing the, <laughs> those lines. Cause I could picture it in his voice. I could, I could hear it, you know, some of those ones they're they're just so, so great. Excellent. Yes. I, I was so fortunate to have the, um, the movie in my mind, to have the mm. characters in my mind, to have those terrific performances in my mind. Once you hear Pacino and De Niro speaking and moving and uh, and and going through everything in the in the film, it's hard to to imagine the characters uh, any other way. And I used that as much as possible yeah. to, to have a, a really three D vivid. Uh, sense of presence of these guys as I was, as I was writing. So I thought it was a real, um, it was a real treat. It was, it was wonderful to have that there, but you know, and Michael also said, you know, get, get their voices, Um, not their accents necessarily, but uh, that, you know, Hannah is uh, the cop is sarcastic, sardonic. Uh, He's, you know, he, he, and he sees everything and he comments on it constantly. Neil is 
terse. Mm-hmm. He says nothing uh, extraneous. Uh, he wants to be anonymous. If 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 uh, three words will do, why use five? If a grunt will do, why use one? Mm-hmm. So uh, you you, you kind of take that and, and incorporate it into into their dialogue and into their into their uh, into their personalities. Oh. So it was it was wonderful, and to have Val Kilmer there. I mean, to have the image of Val Kilmer uh, yep. <laughs> in my mind as I'm writing uh, as I'm writing Chris. Um, that was definitely uh, a big positive. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you see uh, early scripts by any chance of? Uh, of, of was, there, was there any backstory prior to uh, to uh, you diving into this project? Let's say so in 1995. Let's say 1992, 93, 94. When this is being developed, did Michael Mann have some background on these characters? Um, and I'm thinking about actually. There's a. I think it's it on Amazon. I think it's on Amazon Prime. But uh, Val Kilmer's um, film Val. And he talks mm-hmm. about his life and he has this video camera footage and he's put it together and it's really, um, it, it's really well, well done. And it's, uh, it, it's almost heartbreaking, um, very emotional, but he says when he got to Iceman, there was no background. It was just this guy. Uh, and he says, and so Val Kilmer gave him a backstory and an absentee father and whatever. And that helped him, uh, give a little bit of humanity to that character that didn't have any in the Top Gun actual script. Right. Um, so right. Was, was there some backstory, um, from back in the early nineties or leading up to uh, the, uh, the development or through development of the script for Heat that gave you a little background on these guys, like their time in Vietnam or, or whatever else, or uh, things that uh, maybe made them who they were for what we're looking at in the movie, which is a few weeks in 1995. Exactly. Um, I, uh, Michael did give me the shooting script for um, to, to read through, which was, uh, which was absolutely fantastic because that's when I discovered Michael's voice on the page. Mm. Um, I could see how uh, how vivid and propulsive uh, his writing was, even in even in screenplay form. And he had written uh, biographies for 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 Hannah and Macaulay and for for Chris mm. that he that he sent to me, and that was uh, revelatory. It was it was just a gold mine. So Hannah, yeah, as you talked about him growing up in. Um, in rural Illinois, uh, desperate to to get out somehow, uh, driving through the cornfields late at night uh, with his headlights off to see how long he could stay on the road uh, in the pitch black uh, at midnight. Um, uh, so what did he do? He enlisted in the Marines. Um, he had a whole uh, whole story explaining how Hannah was uh, was caught up in the the, the Battle of Huey, mm-hmm. and uh, his experience there, and what it was like for him coming back, and then uh, then going to college in the United States uh, for for Chris, um, who is a kind of a jumping jack flash character mm-hmm. in the movie. He uh, he's he's a screw up in everything except crime. Yeah. <laughs> he. His yeah. life is he lets his life spin out of control, except when he's on the job. And then he is focused and professional and ruthless and lethal. But, uh, you know, he grew up uh, without a father that his dad uh, had um, uh, uh, and got his mom pregnant at 17 the night before he shipped out to Germany. Uh, after being drafted and then uh, discovered the Autobahn, uh, which had no speed limit. And three, he and three of his buddies, uh, you know, died three weeks later because they decided to see how fast they could go in some 
little car. Uh, so Chris grew up with a, a mom who had uh, was a go-go dancer at a at a, at a biker bar, and uh, so that was kind of like okay. Now I see why uh, <laughs> yeah. why he turned out uh, turned out the way he did. But uh, it, it was just. Uh, it was it was wonderful to see uh, see that Michael knew who all these people were and that he had given all this to the to the actors yeah. as well, so they knew what where these people had come from yeah. uh, as as well. Oh, yeah. So great, so great. I love the '80s references in there that are just woven in because uh, I'm a child of the '80s, so I always go back to to that formative time in my youth. So I, I love that, and then I love how there was the word heat is in here, just kind of just this, just put in here a couple times, um, and uh, not as like heat, but just. A, just woven in. Uh, and I love that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so fantastic. Is there plans for a film? Because you can't help but think that when you read this, um, uh, what an amazing film this could be. It's Michael Mann. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> of course there are plans for a film. He, he has big plans for, uh, for a film Good. and that's all I can say. Good. I love it. I mean, you have to think that, but then I did a quick little online look and, you know, I was like, ah, I'm not sure what's, um, but, uh, but yeah, I hope, I hope that you guys do that and get to collaborate together on it because it's such an amazing collaboration. Obviously, um, I so enjoyed this and I think you I mean, you guys are, I did knock it out of the park. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for spending all this time with me. This has been so My cool. Pleasure. And, uh, it is. But before I let you go, because I know you have to go write mo more books and have so, mo <laughs> so, so many other things going on, but I have to ask you about being a three-time Jeopardy champion. Yes. What is that? You want to try out? All about, no. <laughs> I would I would crumble under the pressure. Uh, you know, everybody <laughs> no. thinks they're pretty smart when they're sitting on their couch, you know, in the evening well, watching it. it. But when you have an audience and on stage and there's lights and you have money on the line and all this other stuff, that's got to be, it's like the person in uh, like boxing who's really good in the boxing gym. And then, but they go mm -hmm. and for whatever reason in the ring or same thing with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or with uh, mixed martial arts, uh, when they get in that ring or they get in that octagon and there's all those people it's just that those lights and the whatever whatever that is that shifts it's a little different and i can only imagine it's the same with jeopardy that i think i'm pretty clever when i can get a couple of those things when i'm sitting on my couch but up there on stage that's got to be a different deal so how did that all come about well uh, like you i was i've just always been a huge jeopardy fan and i would sit there and i I'd think you know i'm getting all these answers and uh finally one day you know at the end of every show it says if you want to be a contestant on jeopardy you know at the time it said call this number so I finally said, what am I waiting for? And I, and I did. And, you know, they said, come down for, for an audition and uh, you have to take a, a written test, uh, you know, pop culture, general knowledge. And if you pass that, then they have you play a, um, a mock game uh, to make sure that you're not just going to be like yeah. weird or right. too boring or something. And then they say, we'll call you. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later they did, they said, come, you know, we want you to be on the show. Um, at that time, I was super cool. Um, it took it took me until about three days before I was supposed to go tape it that I panicked and like started started like getting every trivia book I could, trying to remember the titles of every Shakespeare play, every mm -hmm. Civil War battle, Canadian provinces, because Alex Trebek. Ah, uh, good Canadian, thinking. Good thinking. So um, uh, just smashing the trivia into my mind. But uh, once they call you up onto the, to the set. And you start to, you, the cameras come on and the game starts to play. You're just so overtaken 
with, well, I'm pretty competitive, but so you just, you just fall straight into it and the focus comes on and the, you know, you want to be fast on the buzzer. You want to, uh, you want to get in there. And it was, it was so incredibly fun that I, I could have gone on forever. It's time they, they only, you know, you could only play five days max when oh, I, when okay. I was on there. But uh, it was just a tremendous experience. It was uh, absolutely wonderful. And I and this is I'm gonna have one more brag here that uh, I'm not I'm now not the only Jeopardy champion in the family that my daughter was I on last year that. and is a Jeopardy champion. I did yes. note that. Yes, that is amazing. Are <laughs> there other families that have that have multi Generational champion? I think not wow. because uh, Kate mentioned it on on the on the broadcast. It was wow. one of Alex Alex Trebek's final shows, yeah. but she mentioned it, and um, apparently he sent his staff to go and check it out, and wow. uh, they, they they didn't come up with anybody else. So, amazing, yeah. amazing! A family of overachievers. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I love Jeopardy. I, I'm not. I love uh, Trivial Pursuit, and I've not played Trivial Pursuit in years. I think I keep threatening to have a family board game night, like every Sunday evening or something. Um, mm -hmm. But I just need to. Oh, you should. Yeah, I need to. I need to action that. Uh, <laughs> I need to make put that move that up my priority list. But uh, I think I'll force the kids to just to sit through some Trivial Pursuit because I loved doing that growing up. It was so much fun. Um, there's some similarities there to, to Jeopardy as well. But uh, that is fantastic. Amazing. Amazing. And what's up next? For you then is there are we writing what's what's happening there there's more unsub to come mm -hmm. more standalones um heat is uh is just still now hitting the the book yep. the bookstores and libraries it's out august 9th yep. i um and actually i've uh it's, it's august 1st now my, my my other big project this year has been rebuilding my house ah. but uh, a year ago today we had a um we had a major fire no. a car a car fire in the garage and uh it took out the entire house essentially so uh we've been we've been rebuilding it but we could just got back in this week oh my goodness and uh that's why i've got like this very empty i was shelf. wondering about that actually i'm like maybe she's moving into a new office like in my head I've been i thinking. am if i turned if i turned the screen around you would see the rest of it looks like a construction site <laughs> but uh but we are everybody's okay oh, wow um, we were able to rebuild but that's been that's been that's been our other big project this year oh, but uh, i am i am home and it's fantastic so now i just need furniture oh my gosh did it so it got all your books and everything. Uh, we've got some boxes that we haven't unpacked yet that say books, but yeah, we, but, a lot of them did go. Oh. But um, but the stories remain, and we can oh. they can be replaced. Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that is crazy. Uh, were you in the house when that happened? No, I was not. My husband was. I was. Uh, this was this was right after I'd been working with Michael for a week. I was still I was still in California, and uh, my husband was uh, was home, parked the car in the garage, came in, and heard a gigantic boom. And uh, so when the phone rang, when my phone rang, I picked it up and I wasn't really, I'm like, hey, honey, how are you? And then, you know, I'm like, why are there sirens? <laughs> oh, my God. But, what uh, happened? What anyway, did they say The fire happened? department was fantastic. I'm sorry, what? What, what did they say happened? Uh, like usually we don't expect uh, our cars we, to explode when we park them we in the don't. garage. We haven't received the official report yet, but it was apparently an electrical uh, malfunction. And um, oh I was under the hood. Fire extinguisher didn't work. Um well, it did. It emptied quickly, but by that point, there was uh, wow. it was 
it was uh, out of control. So, but the fire department is close and they were absolutely fantastic. And uh, we're going to have them over for a Christmas party now that we're back in the house. Perfect. Perfect. Well, best of luck with the new construction. And uh, of course, I don't need to wish you luck with this because it's going to gonna crush. And everybody, whether they're a fan of Heat or not, they will be after reading this book. And if they haven't seen it, they will watch the movie after reading this. They'll just, they'll want to. And hopefully we'll see a film of this and looking forward to the next unsub and everything else that you have going on. So thank you so much for taking all this time today. I really appreciate it. Are you kidding? Oh, this is great. What are what, What's a better way to spend an afternoon getting to, to talk writing with you? Yeah. Looking forward to the next uh, uh, adventure of uh, yeah. James Reese. Yes. So please, uh, can't wait. I'm, I'm, I'm back on it uh, this afternoon. So uh, locking back down. So, but uh, but thank you so much and best of w- best wishes with everything. And please reach out if there's ever anything I can do. And uh, hopefully we'll link up in uh, in person soon. Absolutely. Great. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks, Jack. And take care. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Navy Federal Credit Union. I have been a member since 1996. There is my original card right there. I uh, got that at Damneck, Virginia, when I was at Intelligence Specialist A School at the Navy and Marine Corps Intelligence Training Center uh, on Damneck, Virginia, right before I went to BUDS. So it was boot camp, ISA school, BUDS, and then off to the races in the SEAL team. But the entire time, to include through today, I have been a member of Navy Federal Credit Union. And now they're sponsoring this podcast, which is amazing. Crazy how things come full circle like that. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union lets you experience more from everyday commutes to your next big vacation. The flagship credit card earns you three times the points on travel so you can get rewarded for wherever you're headed next. Plus this premium travel card has a low annual fee of $49 and two times the points on all purchases outside of travel which means the rewards don't have to end even when the vacation does. Speaking of rewards, you can get a Navy Federal Auto Loan and reward yourself with a new car. Applying is easy. You can do it on their mobile app, online, or by phone. And it's so fast, you can get a decision in seconds. Navy Federal Credit Union has great rates on auto loans. With their car buying service powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used are at Navy Federal. Our members are the mission. Nice. I like that. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, open to the armed forces, the DOD veterans, and their families. Flagship rates are variable and range between 10.74% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. That's NavyFederal.org. I want to thank my friends at Black Rifle Coffee for sponsoring the Danger Close podcast. I've been a huge fan for the longest time. Drink Black Rifle Coffee every day day. And if you keep your eyes peeled, you will notice that perhaps Chris Pratt is wearing a Black Rifle Coffee t-shirt, not unsimilar to this one in the Amazon series adaptation of the Terminal List. Now you can go to blackriflecoffee.com slash dangerclose and use code dangerclose20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase and your first coffee club order. Black Rifle Coffee, America's Coffee, keep crushing. All right, let's talk about 10,000 
Cc. So 10,000, awesome company. If you have tried their interval shorts or their tactical shorts, which these are right here, you know that you are not going back to anything else. These things are awesome. And uh, I got a pair of pants from them recently too. And man, amazing, amazing. Um, I've worn a lot of shorts over the years, obviously being a West Coast SEAL at Team 5 when I started out. So that was kind of the the thing. Um, but I have worn a lot of shorts and these ones, hands down the best. I mean, that's just how it goes. Uh, they were tested by over 50 special operations members in their testing phase. So it makes sense that they're awesome, but, uh, definitely try these out. Go to 10,000.cc, uh, follow them on Instagram. Same thing. 10,000.cc on Instagram. Uh, but go to the website, check it out super easy to order. Uh, there's not crazy amount of different options. So, uh, and then there's packages on there as well. I mean, they just do a fantastic job in all that they do. Free shipping, free returns, uh, go to 10,000.cc slash danger close for 15% off your order. You will not regret it. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. All right, I'm going to start today with Hoot and Young. Oh yeah. So if you saw the terminal list on Amazon Prime video in that first episode, you will note that James Reese and Boozer are drinking some Hoot and Young whiskey in that bar scene. And I uh, wanted to give a little tip of the hat to Delta, uh, Norm Hooten. Um, so man, thank you. And he sent me these. So Hoot and Young Thank you guys for sending this care package along. It will go to good use, I assure you. Uh, you also might remember that uh, James Reese uses an email, and it is hootenyoung at protonmail.com when he tries to reconnect with Katie to ask her a question. So uh, Young is in there uh, twice for uh, for those that are that are paying attention. So thank you guys for doing this. Check out the website, hootenyoung.com. That's H-O-O-T-E-N-Y-O-U-N-G.com. So this one right here, this is a Cabernet cask finish in this one right here, aged six years. Uh, this one right here is barrel proof. What does it say here? Aged 12 years, Young right here with this white label. Uh, right here, age six years, Zinfandel cask finish right there with that green label, light green. This one right here. And, and Hoot, thanks for signing these for me. Really appreciate it. So cool. Uh, this one aged 12 years, batch number one. Man, love it. This one right here, uh, aged 15 years right there. And what's this one? Right here, uh, a Syrah cast finish right here, six years. So very cool. I will be sampling these all shortly. So uh, head on over. They also have cigars on there. Check out their Instagram as well, Hoot and Young. Uh, they take some great pictures uh, of everybody hanging out, drinking some uh, some whiskey and smoking some cigars. So they're my kind of people. Uh, what else do I have here? Ben Garwood. So he's on the podcast coming up shortly and uh, check him out with everything that he has going on. But uh, Ground Hammer right here and the Defenders of the Realm. Uh, he's a former SAS operator. We had a great conversation on the podcast and uh, this, I'm going to read the back here. So Ground Hammer, two veterans fanatical about action and sci-fi created a series of sagas inspired by real people and real events. 
Groundhammer and the Defenders of the Realm is an alternative story about the creation of life and the battle for good over evil. Our lead character, Groundhammer, is inspired by soldiers who served in 22 SAS, whose personalities, actions, and deeds have had profound influences on our creators. Story by Ben Garwood and Joe Stephenson. Man, this looks awesome. Uh, and I, I have them on order. They're not, they're not here yet. I think they're coming from, from Great Britain, so the actual stories. But um, check this out right here. Check out everything that Ben Garwood has going on. Once again, we had a great conversation together. Uh, super cool guy. And hopefully we'll be linking up in person soon. What else? Check this out. So I'm very involved with the covers of my novels uh, in the hardcover editions. Um, but when it comes to international covers or when it comes to the large print editions, not so much. So in, uh, on the covers of my novels, you know, if something shows up and it has a fingers on the trigger or something like that, or it's not the kind of the right kind of pistol, or it's like pointing at the, the, the cover model's leg or something like that, you know, I make adjustments. And so I'm very involved in those, but when it comes to these other ones, I kind of think they're just fun to let go however they are created. And some of these are pretty cool uh, and fun. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of pistol this is right here. Looks a little bit like Tom Cruise right there. You know, no beard. I'm not sure exactly what's going on, but this is the large print edition. So all the books have large print editions uh, and the covers on those large print editions are pretty classic. So I have a good time with those. Same thing with the international uh, versions of the covers. They're pretty cool to see, just see what the take is from, uh, from other, uh, from other countries. And these are some other ones like this, like one, he has his shirt cut off. It looks like he just made it like five minutes before in one of the covers. But um, anyway, it's pretty fun. And Montana Knife Company. Bam. Look at this. Josh Smith. Thank you so much. I'm going to open this right here. So you get this. It, uh, it gives you a little information. This is the flathead fillet that just showed up right here. So it gives you information on your blade, comes with a sticker. Uh, once again, Montana Knife Company right here. Designed and hand finished by Master Bladesmith, Josh Smith. So very cool. And I'm gonna open it up right here so we can check it out. I saw this fillet come up and yeah, it looked awesome. So there we go. There is the sheath right there and Ooh, <laughs> look at that. Well, that's awesome. This is going to get some use. So that is pretty cool. Josh, thank you so much. Check out Montana Knife Company. When they do a drop, I think you have to sign up for the newsletter so you know when the drops are coming. But when, when they do a knife drop, those things are gone. So sign up for the newsletter, Montana Knife Company. And that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Meg Gardner, go to her website, and that is M-E-G-G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R.com. You can also follow her on Twitter at Meg Gardner one That's M-E-G-G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R-1. And be sure and pick up Heat 2. It is absolutely fantastic. I hope that they make a film because, uh, yeah. <laughs> It'll be incredible. You can follow me on the social channels at Jack Carr USA. You can go to officialjackcar.com. That is the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to subscribe. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.
case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Exactly. Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy exactly. or right. Right. An How, uh, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.